People of the world, hello and welcome to the Brothers Talk with your hosts, Rod, Scott, and Norm, where our purpose is a simple one. Tune into our weekly podcast each Friday, wherever you listen to your favorite programs or on this website to hear us, three black, unfiltered African-American men with no strings attached, giving voice as the most feared, most misunderstood, and most rarely heard from segment of the population on topics of interest to us for education, enlightenment, and entertainment. To reach us with your comments, questions, and suggestions, we're at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, the Facebook group of the same name, and if you care to share in more detail, hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Also, stay tuned for details about our upcoming news and perspective show on Millennium TV's M24 streaming news station. Thanks again, and welcome to our regular listeners for tuning in. And to any first-timers, know that you're, we're sincerely grateful that you've chosen to spend a part of your valuable time with us. For both groups, you are here on a special occasion. As for our 40th show, we've got a special post-election show and so much to address that we're expanding this week's conversation to go a little bit longer than normal. We've got a couple of great guests because we want to do justice to the new political reality that we're facing. So before we get into the big show, though, I want to once again give our heartiest endorsement and recommendation to Chef Dion and his organization, Disabled Combat Veterans Youth Program, as they continue to do God's work in feeding those with food insecurities. Two weeks back, he was our guest, and he shared how using only volunteers and donations, they're literally feeding thousands of families in northern New Jersey. It's always relevant work, but especially as we come upon the season of Thanksgiving, we want to be mindful that there are those who we can truly show our appreciation for what God has blessed us with by helping to make sure that those in need can be helped to have food. It remains one of this wealthiest nation's great shames that we have people with food insecurity as well as those with housing insecurity, but at least we can do our part to see that Chef Dion and his people can do what many of us cannot or will not do. So check out his website at dcvyp.org. That's D for disabled, C for combat, V for veterans, youth, Y for youth, P for program.org. Again, that's dcvyp.org and give what you can. You'll be blessed by the experience. And now, Norm. Yes, thanks, Rod. And uh, since Scott's not with us today, I want to talk to the family and I want to tell them this pandemic is real. Be safe, take care of each other, and most importantly, let's support Black business. And what a year 2020 has been and continues to be. Posted on my Facebook page last week as we ended Daylight Savings Time that I wasn't really sure if we needed another hour added to this year. Election is finally Got here, and after a bunch of nonsense, we finally heard Biden-Harris will be the 46th administration to occupy the White House. With that, we're absolutely thrilled to have the room balanced for this episode with our two special guests. Returning for her third appearance is our entrepreneur, government contractor, veteran, and all-around good people, Deidre Windsor. And, and for his first time joining us is the new friend of the show, Jasper Hendricks III, the founder and president of Brat Pack, B-R-A-T Pack, and the president and CEO of Social Strategies, a public affairs firm based in Nashville, Tennessee. He also serves as a political advisor to the Tennessee House Minority Leader and as a commentator for Fox's Channel 17 in Nashville. Jasper, welcome to the podcast, and please feel free to share a little more about yourself with our audience. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so I am very new to Tennessee. I've been here for about three years. Prior to that, I was in D.C. 
where I worked on the Hill and also worked as the voter empowerment director for the NAACP and the director of field and political programs for the National Black Justice Coalition. And I was a member of the 2016 Presidential Electoral College, uh, where I represented Virginia's 5th Congressional District, uh, my hometown in uh, Farmville, Virginia, uh, Prince Edward County. So, uh, you know, um, loving here, left D.C. as an exile <laughs> uh, after the last uh, presidential election and um, have been pretty excited about the outcome uh, for this presidential cycle. So thank you again for having me. Great, great. And Deidre, please, once again, say hello to our folks out here. Hello um, to the entire uh, Brothers Talk family. I'm very excited to be back. I'm really excited to be here with Jasper today because, uh, you know, as we basically were celebrating uh, this post-election, I'm looking forward to to hearing his thoughts. I know he's been on the political scene for many, many years. So I'm excited to be back here with uh, you, Rod, you, Norm, and and Chester, who's not with us today. I'm just excited to be back and looking forward to the dialogue as usual. Terrific, terrific. So let's get right to it. I mean, the uh, first thing, what was constantly coming up this past week as the election results were rolling out was the discrepancies in the polling. And I thought it was kind of a misdirectional argument because they were really wanting to say how the pollsters got it wrong. And it's just my opinion that they didn't get it wrong. They didn't go far enough in asking the question, because I have no doubt that if they were asking the simple question of do you prefer Biden over Trump, that in essence, he was leading in double digits. But I think in my in my opinion, that when you added the Biden Harris, that then racism once again reared its ugly head, and that is what tightened up the the electoral process. So I'm curious as to what you think about that, Jasper and Deirdre. Well, I'm just going to simply say, as I say at all the time, the only poll that matters is the poll on election day. I've worked, I've been on uh, campaigns, and I worked, you know, at presidential campaigns since 2000 on the Al Gore. I was Virginia State Youth Director during that time. You know, I mean, but we should have learned during 2016. You know, Hillary Clinton was ahead in the poll. You know, it ended up losing the election. The only poll that matters is the poll on election day. You're calling people. These folks are calling people and they're only calling a couple of hundred people, you know, out of, you know, as we've seen, 140 million people voted and you're going to get a sampling of a couple of hundred, maybe a couple of thousand, you know, of these 150 million people who voted. So you have to, uh, when you're running campaigns, you have to talk to your voters. You have to talk to everybody, you know, and and what is shown is that President-elect Biden's message did resonate with a majority of the people who voted, but there's still a lot of people who didn't vote. Well, I also think the uh, issue around the polls themselves were, I don't know how inaccurate they were when you really don't necessarily adjust for the swing state process, meaning for me, that in 2016, you know, Hillary Clinton clearly outpolled him because she got four million more votes than Trump did. And this time around, they're estimating that once California and Washington and some other states finish counting their votes, that in all likelihood, Biden will end up with as many as six or seven million more. So there clearly is an opportunity for there to have been some double digit numbers there. Deirdre? Yeah, I, I don't really believe in polls. I'm with Jasper on this. Um, I really do believe it, it, it's kind of like real estate. You know, I always say your house is worth as much as somebody's willing to pay for it. 
So a lot of people on paper think, oh, my house is worth a million dollars. But if you sell your house in a down market, you might not be able to, if you're trying to sell it, you might not be able to sell it. I feel the same way about polls. You know, we don't know what's going to happen until election day. And after 2016, I don't, I just don't believe in polls because the polls were, they got it so wrong then. And so, and, and I always, because they take a sampling, so I don't, I don't truly understand it, but I know, I feel like people voted in mass because people wanted to see change. I don't think it was, oh, we love Joe Biden. I think it was, we have got to get him out of it. For me, it's less about, it was less about ideology and it was more about just decency. Um, and, and so that's one of the reasons why I just, I don't even understand how, I don't understand the 70 million who voted for Donald Trump. I just, I don't, I have no, I just don't understand it. I'm looking at it from the perspective of looking at the human dynamic, how he treats people. Um, you know what, how he treats his own family. I'm just, it's, it's, um, it's puzzling to me, but I think people, people were very adamant. Hey, we want to see this guy gone. And they knew that the only thing that they could do, I think people learned a lesson also from 2016. You know, I think a lot of people sat on the sidelines in 2016 so they could say, oh, I didn't vote for her. You know, she won, but I didn't vote for her. And they realized, oh, a bunch of other people had that same idea. So <laughs> even if you don't like the person running, you still need to go and vote uh, if you want to impact change. But he just said she voted for decency. You know, I mean, I am puzzled because, you know, maybe you guys can help me. And I don't know if this is the proper form, but I have an uncle that actually supports Donald Trump. And 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 I actually heard from another uncle because I've actually banned him from communicating with me until after the election is settled. And so but I heard from another uncle today that, you know, he still has not given up and he is still holding on. And this is the man that is a minister. You know, I mean, you know, I, I'm just like, I'm baffled. You know, but when you say, you know, decency, you vote for decency, like, what is it like? Because, you know, because people say that people vote for Donald Trump are racist. What do you say about those black people that supported Donald Trump? There's two things. I think the the, the first is that back to uh, Deidre's question is that we, we do have to acknowledge that 48 percent plus of the country supported what they knew was an avowed racist. I mean, that he basically, you know, who had the support of many racist organizations. That's another reason why I feel like, you know, that's uh was a part of their support was the fact that, you know, they recognize that Kamala Harris is effectively now a heartbeat away from the presidency. But then the other thing, uh, Jasper, is because like say, you know, I happen to be a, a Baptist minister as well. And so I do know that there are a lot of conservative values inside the black church that likes to align themselves with a lot of the evangelical voices. And so they like to to still find themselves on the front lines of being anti-LGBTQ uh, issues as well as anti-abortion. And it really is unfortunate because not only is it not biblical, but it also really has no place in the political uh, spectrum of discussion. So, Well, his support actually increased from 2016. After four years of nothing, he did better. Yeah, he did do better. I, I feel like I saw a poll somewhere that said he did better in L LGBT, um, that he did better with Black men. Obviously, he did better with white women, but he didn't do better with white men. His 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 uh, support decreased on on white men. So it's just very interesting to me. But but I I'll say it all day. Like to me, I don't know how seventy million people. Like to me, I'm I'm all I'm thinking about 
the character, you know, character matters, values matter, decency matters. Um, and to me, that's what prevailed. But again, we get that 48%. We get this large number of people. And um, it's disheartening because now you're looking at people like, how, how do you look? How do you completely look past all of these things. And I do get that there are some people who it wasn't about. I don't I don't think for one second that everybody who voted for for Donald Trump is a racist. I just don't believe that. I do believe that some people can look away from what's going on. And if it's not, it's like the guy who passes the car accident. You know, you see a car crash and you keep going. It's like, it's like, well, it doesn't impact me. So I'm going to keep moving. You know, somebody else can take care of that. But uh, like I said, you know, that's part of our ongoing mm -hmm. you know, a lot of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so one of the things that we've really been forcing to the front this year is there's no such thing as non-racist or not racist. Mm -hmm. And the fact that if you support a racist, you're racist. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, if you vote for a racist, you're racist. Because in essence, what you're doing is enabling them. And so we have to get rid of that notion that there's some third category that, you know, you're either anti-racist or you're complicit in uh, allowing racism to continue. And so but you did segue us into the uh, next topic, which are, are these articles that keep getting written about the number of black men that supported Trump. And I read one just a few minutes before we started that talked and the title itself showed how misleading it, it was. It was uh, uh, CNN and it said black men slightly shift in record numbers for Trump. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute, how, how do you slightly shift and it results in record numbers? And then what was more disturbing is I read through the article and so they talked about the fewer numbers of Black men who voted in successive years for Trump, for um, Hillary Clinton, and then also for Barack Obama, that the number went down each election. But the, the most misleading thing in the article was the fact that they never spoke to the supposed number of black men that actually voted for Donald Trump. And so I said, well, you know, if you're going to make a statement like that, then the first thing you really need to do is talk about how many black men actually shifted their vote, not just the ones that did not vote for this ticket. And so that to me is that that sort of misleading kind of a tactic that ignores voter suppression and disenfranchisement that, that really needs to be a bigger part of the story. Wonder sometimes, and I try not to get into it too much. And I and I'll, I'll go right to you, Jasper. But sometimes I wonder though too with the exit polling. You know, do people always put? Because I know for mail-in um, mm -hmm. ballots, I, I think your race. I, I'm not sure if your race is already on there, but I know. Like, can people say they're something they're not on their ballot? Like, like how much of that is people? You know, just kind of checking off whatever. Can that happen? You're right. It's it's self-reported. It's self-reported data, right? And so you're, we're relying on a person talking to somebody that they don't know that you just ran up on them in a polling place and you asking them who they voted for and they don't know who you are. I mean, a lot could have been said, but 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 I will say that you know I can understand that there are black people who voted, and I see what Rod's point is. Is that you know when you're talking about the percentage, you know I think we we you also need to look at the number. And if we're increasing African American turnout, and there's a larger number of people who are voting, you know, does that equate to the same numbers as it in, in the past? You know, I mean, yeah. it, it, it. But Democrats also have a lot of work. Um, yeah, I agree when with it that. One hundred percent. Work with African American 
and understanding the value of African-Americans. And I am hoping that with this win, that African-Americans will step up and take leadership posts within their local Democratic parties, their state Democratic parties, and in the national Democratic Party. Yeah, this has to be the start of the process. We have to see this as the starting line and not feel like we have, uh, just because we're, we rid ourselves of the evil orange that occupied the White House that somehow we've now overcome any more so than those folks who, when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, felt like that was it because, as we certainly know, that 13th Amendment had its loophole in there that said, in essence, if you put them in jail, you could put them right back into slave labor. So we have to fully be aware that now is just the time to really start to planning our strategy and demanding what we failed to do in the last three elections, which is, or for Democrats in particular, is that if we're willing to give you the kind of supporting block that no other group has given, then we're going to be at the table with our list of of asks. And we really ought to be more about demanding because they cannot uh, in any good conscience show that any of the other groups, uh, as you mentioned, Deirdre, the LGBTQ, the white women, the the, uh, white men, no group votes as a block the way the African-American community does. And so that does mean that we swing these elections. And so we really do have to wield that clout. So uh, Jasper, as one who has been that process, what are your thoughts there? I mean, that's actually, we did a talk about this um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, right before the election um, on the local Fox channel. And I talked about uh, that point about how black people, what are the next steps and how we need to organize for appointments. And so, and, and last night I was actually in conversation with um, the person who's going to be leading up like a sort of black appointments project that's going to be seeking out you know, African-Americans and, and Black people from across the country to serve in positions. I mean, because you got to think about it, we have to fill uh, federal um, appointments in agencies across the country, you know, in offices across the country. Because, you know, when you think about it, agencies like USDA has offices everywhere. You know, um, HUD has offices everywhere. And so all of these offices have to be restructured, re- revamped, and we have to fix all the things. And the only way for us to do it is that we have to be at the table. And so, you know, what we talk about how all these other groups were able to get things done, they also organized after the election. And so I was part of the LGBT appointments task force because I worked for an organization that worked with to bring together black civil rights organizations and LGBT organizations. So I was able to during the first Obama administration, not the first Obama election in 08, they invited me to be a part of this presidential appointments task force, you know, because of my role with this uh, organization. And they organized and they got judges and they were able to and I was able to help to get the to get the first African American LGBT uh, openly gay black judge, you know, federal judge. Um, he's a judge in Miami, you know, um, because of that. And you know, but my point is, is that they had a project. You know, during the 2012, black organizations decided to organize, got together to organize, and and created a project. But you know, four years had already gone by. Let's go. I had a question. What kind of policies should our community look from from this administration? 
That's a good question. I think we need to look at, I think we need to, yeah, I think some of the policy points would be about small businesses, uh, you know, helping small businesses, helping what can we do to um, improve, you know, uh, procurement opportunities uh, within government. Also um, looking at education funding and equitable funding. You know, when it comes to the schools and, and, and modernizing the formula in which we fund, you know, our educational institution, you know, so for instance, you know, we talked about HBCUs earlier, you know, if HBCUs were funded at the same rate and the same as other institutions, then that could have been a win for the Trump administration, but they didn't do that. You know, and so, but this is something that we can do under the Biden administration, hopefully, and especially having a vice president who is a product of an HBCU that we can take this conversation and, you know, and move it. So I think those are, you know, a couple of good ones to start at. And uh, Norm and I had a uh, bit difference of opinion around one topic that we were obviously severely disappointed in the Obama administration when they came into office that basically they turned a blind eye to the war criminals that had been in office before them. And so Norm is of the opinion that these Democrats may, in essence, do the same thing. I told them, I think this is one time you really have to throw the old playbook out the door because of just how vitriolic the attacks were on the the, the opponents this time, that how he attacked uh, Biden and his family, uh, and those issues that I can't really see them just turning a blind eye and saying, let's move on. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Jasper? <laughs> I, I really, I don't know. See, I, I, you know, I mean, this president is very unpredictable. And so a part of me believes that he's not going to even serve out his term just so that that Pence can become president and then pardon him. Um, and, um, before, you know, Joe Biden is elected, nothing is predictable with, you know, with these people. And so, um, you know, it's like in a self-preservation mode. It's going to have to be. And so, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how he responds as to what is going to look like. It's going to give him a couple of hours, a few hours to process this, a day process it. And then we'll see, you know, how he's going to respond. But I don't see him carrying out. But can't Pence unilaterally wipe every the slate clean for him? Well, at least the new, the, at least the stuff that they have, like that they're going through right now. Like you know, New York has a lot of stuff on them. You know, the the uh, uh, black attorney general in New York, Letitia mm-hmm. James, mm-hmm. has a lot of stuff on him that they can, you know, and so and they can make it disappear. Like the stuff that she has on them, they can that can make them go down for just, you know, a few years alone. So if, you know, so if if she's successful in doing that, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about him for the rest of his lifetime. And so, but that's something that is currently going on that they can make go away with a pardon. Well, that is one of the good news things that the Justice Department did before uh, Bill Barr came into the attorney general's office is that they moved a number of those prosecutions into state. Yep. So that means yep. that even if he gets a federal pardon, it has absolutely no bearing on okay. the state court. Well, that's yep. good then, yep. because I do think yep. that, that it would be unfortunate if he never had to answer for any of these things that he's done uh, over the last four years. And, and frankly, for most of his lifetime, because clearly what we're learning now is most of the stuff that he has said 
uh, over the years is is not true. So, I mean, it's it's just very unfortunate. I I feel like when I when I think about what has gone on over the last four years, and I think about the people that call themselves patriots, I'm like, it's, it's truly seventy million people who looked at this guy and thought, this is okay, I can live with this. Like this guy has made America look just foolish. Um, I mean, he he represents our nation, you know, but these are the same people who think that it's, you know, it's patriotic if I walk around with my gun and, you know, like I can bear arms, I'm going to walk to the Capitol steps and I'm going to battle uh, for the right not to wear a mask, you know, so it's it's just, it's baffling to me that people can look at all of the things in totality and still say, I'm okay with that. Well, as the great Richard Pryor said, we will see. And so uh, that wraps up a big show for us this week. And so for this week's Positive Black Experience, we want to toot a little bit of our own horn and ask you if you're on Facebook to go to hashtag Black Dollars Matter. There are a ton of Black businesses listed there who would certainly appreciate your support as we go into this holiday buying season. So check out hashtag Black Dollars Matter on Facebook. And also we have relaunching Black Wall Street Nationwide with even more Black businesses. So there are two opportunities for you to go out there and continue to fight the good fight on behalf of Black socioeconomic empowerment. We want to thank our guest, Jasper Hendricks III, and our great friend, Deirdre Windsor. We really do appreciate the both of you being a part of this uh, momentous show for us around the election. And so as always, we give our heartiest thanks to those of you who joined us for the broadcast. And remember, you can also go long form with us at thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. We're the Brothers Talk on Twitter, as well as our The Brothers Talk on Instagram. So we appreciate your time and your interest. We look forward to being with you next time. And remember, as always, let's do better today because that's all we really have.